the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. I'm delighted to say that this week I'm joined by two special guests. One you will know, uh, the former Secretary General of the International Chamber of Shipping, Mr Peter Hinchliffe, and Baroness Bryony Worthington, who leads the European chapter of the Environmental Defence Fund. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Now, Peter, since you've left ICS, you have been doing a number of things, but you've been working quite closely with the EDF around issues of decarbonisation and how we engender a little bit more urgency around uh, innovation in research and development on zero carbon fuels. Can you just give us a little bit of context in terms of what you've been doing and the work you've been doing with the EDF? Yeah, I think the industry, quite rightly and understandably, is very focused on the 1st of January next year and the sulphur requirements. My personal view is that the industry now has got to turn its attention very closely to climate change and the IMO uh, interim strategy because I think finding solutions for those for the problems and for the, in that timescale is actually extremely challenging. What, what I find very heartening is I've seen so many trials are underway already, but it's not widespread, it's just the more forward-thinking companies that are doing these trials. Where I think um, EDF comes in is because we need to find mechanisms for funding innovation. And I think EDF and, and Bryony in particular are very focused on that solution finding. And um, that's why I'm enjoying very much working with them. Bryony, the EDF is a huge organisation. It's one of the world's leading environmental NGOs, I think. But perhaps not uh, as active within shipping as many others. But Shipping, of course, is not just your focus. You're focused very much on the, the, the whole of uh, the, the, this issue of decarbonisation. Can you give us an idea of how you see shipping fitting into this wider work of the EDF? Yeah, so you're right. Um, the Environmental Defence Fund is a 50-year-old organisation headquartered in New York and, and has you know, got 700 staff, so rather large. But we are the European chapter and we've only been around for three years, so maybe why people in Europe may have not heard so much of us. Uh, we identified shipping as a strategic area of work for us here in Europe, partly because um, we're very interested in the transition of how you take the current energy system and make it clean. And we became really interested in shipping because it has such a, um, a unique set of circumstances. Firstly, um, it's governed by a UN body, and that UN body happens to be headquartered in London, the IMO. Um, it, it, we already knew discussions were starting around the issue of climate change. I mean, they've been talked about for, for decades, but now it felt like the IMO was finally coming to take some action on this. And it, we felt we could add some value because we've got quite a deep bench and a lot of experience in how you decarbonise other sectors of the economy. So we've done a lot of work in on the land in terms of how we take coal out of the power sector or how we introduce clean technologies into, into energy and transport. And we thought this could be transferable into this field of shipping. And as we've got to know the shipping sector more and more, we've become really very excited by the fact that this is a, a, a very capable sector. It's got tons of practical people, engineers, um, logistic experts, and it's got this rulemaking body of the IMO that really could set standards that would then lead to a huge injection of investment into really clean, future-proof solutions. So we're now, we've gone from, oh, well, this looks interesting, to now really excited. And obviously we're having this conversation within the context of the IMO agreeing a 2050 target to reduce carbon emissions by at least 50% by 2050. Realistically, that means we need to be looking at zero 
carbon emissions ships on the water by 2030. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about assets with a lifespan of around 20 years in the current uh, market. So there is real urgency here. Mm. Given your experience within other sectors, given your experience with dealing with international sectors that are necessarily difficult to uh, change, um, and, and, and given the IMO context, which you well understand, mm. uh, you know, making uh, you know, 174 member states agree on anything is a minor diplomatic miracle on a daily basis, but yes. completely decarbonizing the supply chain is, uh, is, is one hell of a step. Where do you see the priorities here? What do we do first? Mm. So I think for us, the first thing to do is try to create uh, an, 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 a positive environment. Our strap line is finding the ways that work. So we don't, we're not coming to the IMO finger-pointing or hectoring. We're, we are genuinely sitting down with as many delegations as we can meet and as many representatives of the industry as we can meet to say, OK, what can practically be done and where do you, where's your starting position? And from that, we've, we've really started to realise that there's an appetite for change, that there's a desire to do things differently, but there's nervousness. There's obviously concern this is going to lead to you know, high spiralling costs or really unmeetable standards that, that, that are going to be impractical. So having done that kind of groundwork of talking to lots of people, we're now, we feel quite confident, we can, we can conceive of a policy that would be attractive to the majority, that would levy a very small amount of money onto the sector but then trans take that money and invest it into actual projects that are going to see zero emissions vessels on the water demonstrating this is possible in the very near term mm. and we're not talking you know hundreds of dollars on a ton of fuel here we're talking small modest amounts of money recycled into um, projects that are selected on the basis of how efficient and effective they are mm. and we've seen models like that take place in other sectors We've seen that happen in the power sector in Europe, where we've had very small charges added to bills to then power big investments into offshore wind and different types of clean technology. Those models are really translatable. Mm. Um, and we've been very interested in the examples we've seen in Norway, where with the Knox Fund, there being a small amount of money that's really a tax break, but then deployed by industry into projects that industry selects because it knows that it will deliver against targets. So we, we've been, we, we can, we, I think it's too far to, to really imagine where the IMO might be able to introduce a policy mm. with the backing of industry because it's modest but it's effective and that's what we're looking for. You, you wrote in Noise List uh, fairly recently about the, the model of the Knox Fund from mm. Norway. I'm interested to know how you think that translates either on a country-by-country um, country basis or whether it should be applied on a global basis. This has been one of the major problems within the IMO, um, balancing the, you know, the pragmatic realities of an international industry like shipping where for regulation to be effective it has to work on a consensus basis and it has to work applicable to all member states. It's not necessarily the same in other UN bodies, this, this differentiation between what they call common but differentiated responsibilities versus the IMO's no more favourable treatment. It's, it's a complex diplomatic argument, but basically, unless you are applying the same rules to all flags, the minute it comes in, all ships will re-flag elsewhere. Yeah, Just basic economics. Yeah. So the concern, I guess, is if you apply market-based measures on any form, um, on a national basis, what you risk is a fragmentation of regulation, which is complete anathema to the, yeah, uh, the shipping industry. They hate it. You know, uh, you know, 
level playing field is the uh, is the best way to recognize exactly. So yeah. how do you how do you see this working out? It's a fairly fundamental issue. Yeah, it's very fundamental. Well, I, we actually really think one of the strengths of the sector is that it does have that ability to write rules that apply to everybody. Um, that's not to trivialise the fact that there are differences in, in different countries' positions, but it, it the, the fundamental. Uh, question that we face is can you do something that's fair that feels fair to those players who are caught, caught within the system and it, it, it if you national is not the way to go definitely should be global but the but you can conceive of different ways of segmenting the industry that would give different load different um, responsibilities onto different players for example the deep sea large container fleets they don't visit the smallest countries. They are really plying fairly, you know, well-trodden paths between big economic blocks. Mm-hmm. Um, now they are pretty much immune from sectoral, uh, what we call carbon leakage. Meaning, if you put a price on the fuel, oh well, they'll find another way of shipping it. Well, you can't. There's no other alternative to moving that kind of bulk uh, from one part of the planet to another. So, so that is a really interesting sector to start to look at because you can put a price on there without necessarily disadvantaging some of the small island states. And with, with not, if safe in the knowledge, you're not going to see leakage into aviation or trucking or, or fast rail because there is just no real competition. Mm-hmm. So you can, there are ways in which you can design the policy so that you distribute that responsibility or that kind of effort fairly. And rather than try and say, well, this country needs an exemption or this country needs an exemption, let's look at the sector in, in, in sort of class types and see if that gives us an answer that might help us move forward. Okay. Well, let's move away from the policy and, and focus on how you think, once you've raised that money, where that should be applied. You mm. said, you know, there is real innovation out there. Mm-hmm. And Peter, you mentioned it at the outset, you know, there, there are pockets of innovation already underway. We've got mm. small uh, pilot projects with hydrogen uh, fuel yeah. cells, um, battery powered, although mainly in the auxiliary engines and various other things. You know, there's a lot of pilot projects. There's a lack of anything with a real gravitational pull behind it to, to say this is the definitive technology that is going to help yeah, you. Yeah. Do you have any feelings in terms of how you would apportion the innovation uh, research funding? Here? Well, firstly, I think we've gone beyond research. I think we should be doing deployment funding. Mm. And it's a te- it's just a slight difference. We'd say R, D and D, and that second D is really what... Because if you look at what happened in the power sector, it was the building of onshore wind that led to the building of offshore wind that led to the costs coming down. It wasn't people in labs fiddling around with bits of technology. It was actually on the ground engineering that brought the costs down. So that's where I think we are today with shipping. And we've got the benefit of being able to borrow across a lot of, the, of knowledge from those sectors, even to the extent that the advances in aerodynamics means that we can put different types of sails and ships on. You know, there's applications that are directly relevant to making mm. ships more efficient. So I wouldn't. I, I'm not looking for a policy that picks winners. I think we should be trying to evaluate them against how cost-effective they are and, and, and how, how they deliver against our targets. But I would say that there's a. You know, we do need to be able to conceive of a, a, a solution for those big ships, those big long-distance um, uh, uh, kind of cargo carriers. And there, I think we're looking at um, fuels derived from excess renewables. And I, the reason I'm really excited about this is because if you, if you look at the globe and you think, where is all the big solar potential? It's in countries that, by and large, don't have very much demand for electricity. Because North Africa does not have a lot of industry, doesn't have a large domestic demand for energy. So you, you can see that there'd be gigatons worth of investment into solar in North Africa, but who's the off-taker? Who's the buyer of that power? Well, nearly all of these countries have ports and they have ships. 
and they act as an, an anchor in terms of an investment, making that project investable. So for us, anything that draws big investment, and there's, there's no shortage of capital in the, on the, in the world today, people are looking for investment grade, government guaranteed projects to put money into. We can imagine a world in which North Africa is drawing down that kind of you know, billions of dollars of investment into new fuel production processes, basically using sun, air, water. And those synthetic fuels are available today, and some of them are available to be burnt in existing vessels. So yeah. ammonia, for example, we've just done a big report called Sailing on Solar, focusing in on the question of green ammonia, partly because ammonia is a bridge into a fully hydrogen future. It's burn, you can burn it in, in modified diesel engines today, but then it can also be burnt in fuel cells tomorrow. So for those reasons, ammonia appears to have some really interesting qualities. Mm. I mean, fuel cells have been raised a couple of times and it's been one of those development ideas and projects within the industry for some time. It's gaining traction and using uh, things like ammonia as a carrier within the technology certainly seems to be the development mm. direction that we're heading mm. in. But we're not seeing anything really hit the water yet that's got enough pull to sort of generate big investment. I think the investment question is really significant. How do you think the industry could look outside of its uh, existing investment sources? And are there any examples in terms of other sectors you've worked with where you know there have been big leaps in terms of accelerating sort of nascent projects like this? There's one really good example, but it doesn't. I don't want people to get false hope, which is LED lighting, which came in because it was better and it had a very quick life cycle and it could be iterated and the cost came down really fast. That's the one everyone points to and says, well, you don't need government policy. Look, LED lighting is the answer. That's, that's, but that's the poster child. And it's not the same. It doesn't really doesn't apply to this sector where you're talking about big system change mm. from, a, from a system which is hundreds of years old, really, if we're honest. So we do need government policy, definitely need government policy. And I think that this comes back to why the IMO is so important, because it can set that policy. And if we look at the out, and what came out of the MEPC meetings just, just last week, there's now a line in there that says MEPC is going to look at um, alternative fuels and incentives. Now, if I were, you know, we need to be saying that, that needs to be told, spoken about in finance circles, in insurance circles, in, in all the people who serve the, the maritime industry. Because if that word incentives turns into a policy and it's underwritten by a UN agency, that is bankable. Mm. And that's what we need. We need bankable policy that's going to drive, drive those billions into pro practical projects. We mentioned the word urgency at the beginning. And I think this is you know, one of the psychological problems, I guess, within shipping. We're, we're talking here in 2019. There's been a... Um, you know, a seismic shift in terms of um, changing the fuel type that shipping can use, reducing the amount of sulphur. Now, compared to decarbonisation, that's a minor administrative blip, I guess, but yet we are still discussing the finite details of something that is going to kick in in January. You look at uh, established technology like liquefied natural gas as a fuel. It's there, it's accessible, people are using it, but the uptake has been significantly slower than most other people accepted, uh, it anticipated. The problem we've had historically within shipping is that it is a reactive industry. It's slow to change. You know, the shift from uh, sail to steam, from steam to diesel, these were not linear shifts. They took decades, if not hundreds of years, to really bed in properly. Even the most recent innovation of containerization was not a, a quick change. You know, mm. These things take time. We're now looking to 
systematically change the industry effectively from here to 2030 mm. in an industry that has historically had no first mover advantage for any of innovators of mm. historical precedence, um, that has always been um, a laggard when it comes to unilateral and international regulation for commercial reasons. Um, how do we inject that urgency within an mm. industry that has always been a little bit behind the eight ball on this stuff? Well, I think that might be a little bit unfair. Of the, I, I mean, the IMO has been there since the 50s, setting rules that enable global trade to flourish, and it's been incredibly successful at that. It's a little you know, shining beacon of how pooling sovereignty enables the world to get richer. And it was based, that's why it was set up and that's why it exists today. Now, over the years, we've given it additional tasks to do. And I think there's actually, you know, society's been asking it to do the wrong things in the wrong order. We asked it to clean up um, sulfur to address a problem which really, you know, something that was arose in the 70s and 80s. I mean, I'm not meaning air quality is, you know, a big issue, but really it should have been done in conjunction with climate. We shouldn't have done it in sequence. And, and I know the IMO itself really is responsible for having taken the sequential approach, but as a, ship, as a shipping industry now, they're faced with this, I mean, just dealt with sulfur, now having to deal with carbon. Should have been done together. Um, we can still treat, we can still catch up and do it together. If, we, if by 2023, we've got a solid policy in place that's incentivizing investment in clean ships and, and clean supply chains, we'll quickly see those two things aligning because hmm. solving of air quality and the solving of climate can be done in parallel. It's the same, it's the same challenge. Now, so the, the urgency, uh, it, I think we've got to turn this into something that feels exciting rather than something that's being done to the industry rather, you know, that against their will. If you think that there are maybe, what, eight or ten bunkering, fueling, big, big harbours that you can bunker from, you're essentially playing in a fairly concentrated market and you're a price taker, that's not a happy situation to be in. Imagine a world when you've got 30 bunkering opportunities because there is a ton of places that can provide you with your hydrogen derived from renewables. It could be Icelandic geothermal hydrogen, it could be North African solar hydrogen, it could be Brazilian um, hydro hydrogen. All of that can come to market and that opens up a whole range of different options for shippers and that's the vision we've got to get across. So this is a this is a breaking of your current chain to the oil industry, and that's basically you've been doing the world a favour by taking their dredge of their HFO off them, and they've been charging you for the privilege. It's a dreadful situation to find yourselves in. Let's break that. Let's move to a clean fuel system, and actually shipping then becomes the saviour. And what a great position to be in. A very optimistic note to end on new world order. Baroness Bryony Worthington, Peter Hinchliffe, thank you very much for joining the Lawyers List podcast. Thank you very much.